Jana, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it's a bit of a difficult time, uh, but it's nevertheless great that you found a little bit to share your thoughts on a subject that we're very interested in. We've spoken already to Bruno and Emma, two Czech Jewish students that have visited Azerbaijan recently. They've been to the Red Village, they've been to Baku. They've given us their thoughts. And so we already know a little bit and we've explained certain parts of this subject, certain areas of this subject. But we we would also like to have the perspective of a more local person. So would you like to say us would you like to tell us maybe just a little bit about yourself what is your connection to the red village and generally what do you what what are you occupied with these days Yeah thank you very much guys for inviting me uh, my name is uh, Jana and I'm the president of the World Union of Jewish Students um I've also served as the board member of the European Union of Jewish Students and basically I'm very very involved with the world of the Jewish student activism um a small disclaimer that i'm not really local uh in term, when we speak about azerbaijan um my family comes from there uh my family is coming from baku and the red village even though i've never been there uh so it is my heritage it of course um played a very um important role in my life because i was growing up in moscow and mountain Jews in Moscow are very different from Russian Ashkenazi Jews. Um, everybody knows it. Um, so yeah, this is uh, a bit about myself. If you can, uh, and as much as you want, could you tell us a little bit about the history of your family? Um, so my family is Jewish till the... I, it's hard to say till what generation, but I, I can say to, till the fifth generation, and I won't be lying, most likely. I originally, they're coming from Iran, uh, but from Iran, not in the 20th century, even. In the, 20th, um, in the 20s of 20th century, um, my great-great-granddad, uh, who was... Um, trading uh, goods from Iran to Azerbaijan, went uh, from Iran to Azerbaijan just for his normal deal. And the Soviet Union was formed and the border was closed. So he he didn't have Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever to connect to his family. So he just, um, he stayed in Azerbaijan. And back then, Red Village uh, already existed in Azerbaijan. It uh, already has been a place where Jews lived, only Jews lived there. Um, so he just went there and he was from Iran, so he was speaking Farsi, the same Farsi. It's it's an old Farsi. It's not the Farsi that is uh, spoken now in Iran. Uh, so the language was the same uh, to, the, to the language of mountain Jews. Um, so he stayed and that's how kind of my family appeared. That's on my dad's side. All I know that my mom's family was living in Baku for a long time that's incredibly interesting because often for me when i think about like jewish heritage it really is almost like this world heritage because it's so hard to really think about our longer history whether it's like five ten generations back because like i know where my great-grandparents came from but can i say that they were there for hundreds or thousands of years no not at all so it's very interesting that you have that sort of history that you know of family moving from Iran to Azerbaijan and then 
kind of being stuck there because of political boundaries that get established in those moments, and then being able to find Jewish community nevertheless, and therefore being able to settle down and be able to create a new life as a Jew. Um, was that side of your family uh, Persian Jews then? Yeah, they, they were Persian Jews. I don't know much about them, though, um, just because it really was like far, far away. And that's just like a teeny, tiny piece of history that my family could get out. Like that's, that's the only thing that my dad actually knows about his part of the family. Um, as you mentioned, it is hard <laughs> to get these facts out. Yeah. And it's really beautiful, though, that we're able to kind of in embrace that history and that heritage and carry it forward and really wrestle with it and the traditions that our ancestors bring and that we seek to carry forward within the current moment. So you said that you've never been to the Red Village in person? No, I've never been to Azerbaijan in person. I had few opportunities to do this and life just did not work out. But I know that once I'm going to get there, it's going to be incredible. Mm -hmm. I'm really, really looking forward. In that case, what does the Red Village symbolize to you, not just in terms of your family history, but also in this idea of the last Eastern European shtetl, as it's been sometimes described, the only locality outside of Israel or the United States that has a Jewish majority? What do you think is its uh, significance? Why, uh, why do people... You know, all, uh, why do Jews all, all around the world have this sort of connection to it, if they know about it? I think this place is very special, and this place is very special to me personally and to to all the Jews uh, of the Eastern Europe, um, because this place guaranteed the fact that I know that I'm Jewish. If we compare the story of my family to the story of uh, Russian Jews, Ukrainian Jews, Jews in Belarus, um, Jews in some Baltic states, um, during the USSR, they could not practice their Judaism. And I'm not saying that Azerbaijan was like, okay, guys, now you can do whatever you want. It's going to be a unicorn land for the Jews. It wasn't like that. Uh, but still, Jews in the Red Village, they could practice the Judaism. They knew that they're Jews. They knew that they're not Azeris and they were respected. And they were allowed to do whatever they want. My dad was having um, kosher meat for Pesach, for every Passover. And I remember the stories of Ukrainians and Russians um, in, in a synagogue telling us, oh, you know how hard it was in the 60s or in the 70s to get the kosher meat? We were starving because we wanted to practice. They couldn't get uh, circumcisions for their kids. They couldn't, they just basically could not be Jewish. Um, but you could be Jewish in the Red Village. That's why, yeah, one in interesting point is that uh, whenever we needed it to prove, we and by we, I mean uh, my generation, uh, needed to prove that we're Jewish in a synagogue for, for whatever reason. If you want to get married, you need to prove it. If you want to go to like some special program, you need to uh, prove that you're Jewish. Russian Jews, Ukrainian Jews, and Jews from Belarus would always have problems because their documents would not say that they are Jews. Um, it would just say Russian, and their names would not be Mikhail, it will be Mikhail. When it comes to mountain Jews, they would just bring the uh, certificate of birth by their mothers, grandmothers, which will state um, either Jew or another word, uh, Tat, uh, which was basically created for us to to by Azeris to 
um, protect us and not to say directly that we're Jewish, but also to show that we're not Azeris. That's very interesting because I know that under the USSR, there was this really put big push for Jews to assimilate within to the cultures that they lived among. Would you say that wasn't really the case for mountain Jews because they weren't necessarily like part of the European hegemonic culture within the Russian society? Yeah, it, um, you're correct. Um, we, we just lived, Jews just lived in the Red Village and they didn't touch anyone and they were not touched. So it's, it's crazy to think about it, but yeah, it was like a, an island uh, of untouchable. That's incredibly interesting. And you said you grew up in Moscow. So I was kind of wondering, do you have family that was also from Europe or was it all Persian mountain Jewish heritage? Or what brought you to Moscow or your family and yourself? Um, so in the 90s, when the Soviet Union has fallen, uh, tensions started to grow in Azerbaijan. So my family was among of the families that had to leave um, their home. Um, and when I'm saying my family, I don't just mean my dad and my mom. I also mean my grandparents from both sides, my aunts, my uncles, basically the whole family, they moved. And everybody was looking for the best place for them to move. Uh, part of my family moved to Germany. Uh, part of my family moved to Israel. Uh, some part of my family moved to the, US, uh, to the U.S. And my mom and dad were the only one who went to Moscow. And I was already born in Moscow. It really speaks to the sort of diaspora the choices that you have of where you go especially when you're kind of forced to flee from a place the question of where you go and really where you can go is often a very political contentious question so it's very interesting that your family really became like personally that dispersed like there's a personal family diaspora there that's really interesting so thank you for sharing that i wanted to ask a little bit about how the jewish community in russia looks at non-ashkenazi um, parts of the of the Jewish world, I can imagine that there is a significant uh, um, there's a significant majority and dominance of the sort of Ashkenazi uh, perception. By the way, I'm making hand gestures as if you can see me, <laughs> but uh, there's um, uh, so there's a there's a significant Ashkenazi majority in Russia, and in in the British context, for example, in America as well, there's more and more this um, this discussion of the word Ashkenormativity, in terms of the Jewish experience being viewed primarily and singularly only through the Ashkenazi experience, and in in the British context, Sephardi or Mitzrahi uh, communities being uh, basically ignored or, or put under the bus uh, in terms of how Jewish perception is, is viewed outside of the community. In Britain, it's particularly interesting because in before, uh, before the second half of the 19th century, the Jewish community in Britain was primarily Sephardi. Uh, and it was only afterwards that there was significant migration from, uh, from, the, from Eastern Europe that, that changed the balance. And then in France, the exact opposite happened, right? So I wanted to sort of see how in, in this comparison do you, um, do you see in Russia the connection between Ashkenazi and non-Ashkenazi communities? Is there a difference of synagogues? Is there a difference of community leaders? I know Chabad has quite strong, uh, uh, is quite well organized in Russia. How do they approach this subject? So um, there is a big difference between us 
and them between mountain Jews and Ashkenazi, uh, between Bukharian Jews and Ashkenazi, and Bukharians and mountain Jews are alike. Um, that we are much more similar to each other, but we are still different. Um, growing up in Moscow, I remember that before I turned around 15, 16, there was um, a big difference. I mean, there is still a difference, but kind of Ashkenazi Jews would go to their synagogue and then mountain Jews and Bukharians would go to their synagogue. There would be like this separation. Um, but the more Jewish life in Russia developed, the less separation we saw and Chabad played a very important role in it, I think, because they created um, amazing programs which were open for every Jew. Uh, doesn't it, it didn't matter to them if you're Ashkenazi Jew or if you're a mountain Jew. It was open for everyone. And this is how slowly, slowly um, we became, like mountain Jews became more integrated of, in the world of the Ashkenazi Jews and vice versa. So now I think, um, now I think that it's, uh, it's a great co-living situation. Uh, these programs by Chabad, they consist, let's say 60% of the people who go there, 60, 65 are Ashkenazi, and then like 40% will be mountain Jews. And it's, it's just amazing. Yes, we're very different very 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 different and uh when you're in a bus of 40 people you know okay those kids are mountain jews we know how they're gonna act uh but it's still amazing because by the end of the jews were uh, by the end of the day we're jewish that's what matters absolutely what we you you said they you you know how they act are there any specific like cultural characteristics or practices or even like liturgical differences that you could point out between the ashkenazi jews and the mountain jews or bukharian jews well, there are some um, differences in praying. Um, there are some differences in the way we pronounce the name of the God. You know, it's it's very obvious and it's normal. Um, Ashkenazi traditions are different from Mizrahi traditions, obviously. Um, but also just the attitude to, to life. Um, and when I meant we know how they act, I actually, I meant just one thing uh, that uh, mountain Jews really like to dance Liz Ginka every time they get happy. Um, I don't know if you know this dance, but it's just, it's, it's very beautiful. It's not easy to dance. Uh, it's very loud. And my God, every time they do this dancing on the trip, everybody is just like in the circle and clapping to them. I love that. I love that so much. I, I think the sort of cultural diversity between different Jewish communities and then the fact that they can all come together as Jews and really share these traditions with each other is really, really beautiful. And to me, one of the things that makes the Jewish tradition so rich and so beautiful, because it's not this one homogenous tradition, it's many different traditions that can come together for religious or cultural or even just like the fact that we're all Jews and like to be with Jewish community. It's something that's really we cherish. And I think it's really amazing to hear that there's dancing stuff because I've I'm very not familiar with mountain Jewish traditions. So I ask because I'm very curious and I'm very excited to be able to chat with you about this because I'd love to I'd love to see that dance and to be there one day because that's a really wonderful thing to hear. I wish I knew how to dance it. It's, uh... I'm sure you could learn. <laughs> one aspect that I wanted as well to ask is in um, personally uh, I'm very interested in Yiddish as part of my Ashkenazi heritage as um, 
I think it is able to not just connect to the past, but is also able to work towards this uh, diversity of, of Jewish culture. Today, there is a sort of Yiddishist, secular Yiddishist speak that is outside of the ultra-Orthodox community that is able to organize the things more or less, uh, possibly. Um, I spoke, a few, when I was at Summer U, I spoke to Eyal, who was from Turkey, and he was telling me about his um, efforts and and his uh, support for doing work around uh, Ladino. I don't know if you remember, there was a special session that he made about... Uh, question. My question is, um, uh, so so Eyal did a lot of work around Ladino. We interviewed him here as well. Um, is there a similar sort of... What is the state, status of, like, I believe the Mountain Jewish language is, what, Judeo-Tat? It's... Wow, Judeo Tat. It's um, first time I hear that. I don't know if it's that's the way you you call it in English. We call it Juhuri. Uh, Juhuri, yes, yes. Yeah, that's yes. that's the language, um, and it's basically old Farsi, the Farsi that is not spoken now in Iran, but was spoken um, years ago. Um, the actually, it's a very tragic story what happened to the language. Uh, so there was a community. Uh, people were speaking the language. My parents know the language. Um, they were, so basically when my parents were growing up, they spoke Juri, they spoke Azeri, and they spoke Russian fluently, all three languages. Then obviously they moved to Russia. Uh, I was born in Moscow. I never had a chance to speak this language. My parents used this language as the language to talk to each other and so, and I would not understand it. It's a shame, but that's what most of the parents did. And not a lot of young people now speak the language. There are some that speak, um, and it's quite common, but it is a dying language, uh, unfortunately. There were some efforts made by the Mountain Jewish community to recreate uh, the language. And actually, I know a guy who is like, uh, who was a professor, he's, he has zero connections to mountain Jews, but uh, for some reason, uh, he even uh, wrote a book about um, the language. Gianna Bogdanov is his name. Um, and he was uh, teaching the language, but at some point the classes stopped. And, um, I, I'm not sure if this language will make it out to the next that idea of the parents speaking the language that the ch so that the children don't understand it is something that you see a lot in uh in uh yiddish formerly yiddish speaking uh, jewish communities in britain or in america um no so that uh, i just i quickly also looked it up a judeo tat is the same word it's the same word for juhuri it's interesting though that you had uh, uh never heard it in terms of like how to use it english yeah so that's um, that is is something that was written in the USSR for the nationality for Jews in, the, in Azerbaijan and in Dagestan. So not to write Jewish, but like yeah. to write Tat. So it, yeah. yeah, makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, for my family, my family moved from Eastern Europe in the eighteen between the eighteen eighties and the nineteen twenties, when many many Jewish families moved from that to the U.S. Uh, but because my family moved several several generations back. Even my grandparents don't speak Yiddish. So I do think it's very sad in a sense because in a real way, Yiddish is also kind of a dying language. And it's really for me, I didn't connect to Yiddish until frankly this last year when I went to Poland and went to the house that my great grandfather spent the first 15 years of his life in before coming to the US. And I was with Zach and other 
Jewish Poles, basically, and other Jews from around Europe and America that came because we were there for the uh, 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And I was surrounded by more Yiddish speakers than I'd ever been surrounded by in my life. And I was like, wait a minute. I'd always been told that this is like a dead language or very much dying, but here's a bunch of people that are speaking it. And one person in particular spoke Polish and Yiddish and no English. And I was like, wow, if I had Yiddish, I could talk to him, but I don't. And it was kind of like a big sense of loss that I'd never felt at a personal level, but like is historical more than personal most of the time. And then I realized that, like, oh, I actually could learn this. And, like, it's not that it's, like, it is dying, and it's really tragic that it's dying. But at the same time, we don't have to, like, let it die if we don't want to. We can really put in the work. And, of course, it is a lot of work to kind of preserve a language. I tried to learn some Yiddish on my own with Duolingo, and it doesn't work. You can't just learn a language through that. You really need people to talk to and people to practice it with. And... I was kind of wondering, is there any sort of attempts to kind of keep the tradition of Jehuri alive uh, in terms of like cultural work or communal community work around that? So that's what I said. The uh, Mountain Jewish uh, Community Center in uh, Moscow um, tried to create these um, lessons of Jewry with Ghana. Um, I, I was at one or two lessons, but then it just stopped because um, there's not so much um, people, not so many people who want to learn and eager to learn at this point. Yeah. And it's hard because, like, what's the point of learning a language that, like, is mostly a dying language? It's not like it's yeah. actually going to get you somewhere. Like, learning Spanish is really practical. Or learning European languages is really practical. And then learning Yiddish, it's not very practical because, like, there's no one that would really be able to talk to you. And it's just not practical. And then... For me, what really has helped me connect to it is like listening to music with Yiddish and where you don't even have to be able to understand the language to kind of appreciate the beauty of like Yiddish poetry and how it's so expressive of a language. Um, is there any kind of like cultural uh, components of Jahuri? Like, is there any music that uses Jahuri? Uh, uh, like yeah. the dance you mentioned, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of music. Um... I'm not necessarily a big fan of that type of music. I'm uh, not going to lie. Um, but yes, there is. And at weddings, this music is played, of course. Uh, yeah, this is just the type of music that my dad would listen to. <laughs> and I'm not really uh, a big fan. Um, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a Mizrahi music. Like you, you heard Mizrahi music. You, you can understand what I mean. Yeah. Um, we have been recording for about 25 minutes then. So I think it makes sense for us if there's, unless there's anything else that, uh, Yanni would like to say to sum up this point, speak, but we can move on to, um, unless you want to say anything more about this, we can speak a little bit about the World Union of Jewish Students. Um, no, if you guys have any more questions regarding Mountain Jews, I can answer. Um, if not, sure, let's jump to talk uh, about Wujas. Okay. On this program, on this podcast, we have already spent uh, quite a bit of time speaking about the Union of Jewish Students, the British one, uh, the one that does not need a prefix before it, uh, and then leads to a lot of confusion when it comes to acronyms at the European level. So we've spoken about the Union of Jewish Students. We've spoken about the European Union of Jewish Students. We've done uh, two podcasts on it fully uh, after Summer U, or relating to Summer U. Uh, so we've sort of been expanding in, in scope. So we haven't yet reached the world union of Jewish students, uh, so to speak. We There's not 
Yes, you know, I mean, it's at, at one point, you know, we'll get to the uh, the intergalactic union of Jewish students at this rate. Um, but uh, just a little bit, because what is the World Union of Jewish Students for you? And um, how did you get involved with it? How is it organized? What does it do? The World Union of Jewish Students is a democratic umbrella organization representing 800,000 Jewish students across the globe. We work with the national student unions who are our member unions and all the unions that you've mentioned before, including EUGS, UGS, and many others are our uh, member unions. Um, we are fully democratic. I'm, my position as the president is an elected position. Board members are also elected. We also have the CEO who is being appointed by the board and the president. Um, we have around 40 national student unions um, who are operating within us. Uh, we have a very old organization. It was founded in 1924, and Albert Einstein was among the founders and among the first presidents. So it's all the way from him to me. No pressure at all. No pressure. Um, <laughs> no pressure. This, this year, it's actually going to be 100 years of Bujas. And mm. uh, we were uh, supposed to have a big Congress in December in Jerusalem. Uh, we still hope it's going to happen. Um, for now, we're on a kind of on a pause because we don't know what's going to be happening in Israel in a few months. But yeah, that's Bujas in a nutshell. How I got involved, I was representing Russia um, in both boards of EGS and Bujas. And yeah, that's that's how we discovered it. So I was kind of wondering, because in the U.S., as far as I'm aware, there is no affiliate of Bujas. We have Hillel, which is, from my what I understand, it is different because it's not democratic, which I'd say is a big problem. And I was wondering if there's any kind of like discussions or plans or action to try to actually challenge the dominance of a non-democratic student union within the U.S. in terms of with 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 Wujis. Yeah, so uh, of course, Wujis is a student-led organization and all of our member unions are student-led unions as well. Uh, Hillel, Chabad, all of these organizations are amazing, but they're just not student-led. That's the big difference. Um, U.S. was struggling a lot with Wujis. Uh, there were a lot of bright representation representatives from the U.S. One of the loudest uh, presidents that we just had were coming from the U.S. But Jewish community in the U.S. is so big and so broad that it's very hard to stay representative and it's very hard to stay democratic. That's why the previous attempts to build a union there failed. There were some uh, attempts. I remember when I got involved in Wujas in 2016, I believe there was some kind of a union that didn't work out. And obviously, I don't know the full history of years before. And right now we are working with the Jewish on campus. They are an observant union of Wujas. What is the difference between being an observant union and a member union? Member unions can vote on the General Assembly. They can vote on the policies. They can vote for the president, for the board members, et cetera, et cetera. Um, observant unions cannot. But still, when we need to talk about the U.S. students, we are talking to Jewish on campus. They are currently working on creating uh, a full uh, student union 
shout out to Micah, shout out to Julia, to Blake and to everyone who is working on that. Um, so once they create something and once they prove to Wujas that they- Do you know if that organizing is happening on the East Coast? Just because I tend to, that's kind of, it's very different because this is such a big country. You have a lot of very different Jewish communal politics on the East Coast and the West Coast, both in terms of like the religious proportionality of terms of denominations, but also in terms of like the sort of cultural life that emerges because of the differences in communities. So I know that Julia and Mike are both based in New York, um, but whenever Jewish on Campus is posting something, they always post about basically West Coast, East Coast, both coasts, uh, and they talk about all universities. And I'm sure that while creating a union, they will take it into consideration. Uh, so there will be not like, you know, seven board members from New York and New Jersey. Like that's not going to happen. That should not happen. Yeah, it's very difficult to build something nationally in the U.S. And I've talked to a lot of people yeah. across both coasts and it's very divided. You have a lot of different groups, uh, both politically as well as in terms of the type of work that they're doing. Um, so uh, good luck to them. I hope that they can have luck in building something more democratic as like a mainstream Jewish student union, because I think that's the one of the biggest issues where like Hillel kind of monopolizes campus Jewish politics. And that really prevents Jewish students from being able to build the communities that they want to build. And I think having an American union of Jewish students could be a definitely a beneficial thing within the uh, sort of ecology of Jewish communal politics in the U.S. because it's very much uh, a mess in the current moment and very complicated. Not to mention just that to, through its sheer size, the American Jewish student population could really help. I think a lot in that something that I something that hits very close to home for me is this kind of international or transnational cooperation between different Jewish student uh, uh, organizations in communities that are themselves perhaps quite small, but if they are able to work together and be able to exchange information, that could help. And that that sort of American elephant not in the room can certainly um, help out, especially you know communities. Uh, in, in, in smaller, with, with that, that are from countries of smaller Jewish populations. I wanted to ask just one more technical question, if, um, if I can. In terms of the, in terms of the organizations that are able to vote and are represented within Wujus, the organization, um, so you said that both UJS, which is a national union, and EUJS, which is a pan-European union, are both represented. So does that mean that European Jewish students are represented by two different, or they, have, they have twice as many votes? What's the situation? So the way it works, uh, both UJS and EUJS have votes, but also Belgian Union has votes, uh, French Union has votes, um, Russian Union has votes, Ukrainian Union has votes. All of these countries are representing Europe, but they still have votes. And then EUJS separately has votes as well. Um, these votes are based on the population, on the Jewish population in the country. Um, so let's UGS and French Union and Russia usually have the most number of votes. Then EGS also has a lot of votes because they represent a lot of uh, Jewish students in uh, Europe. And then basically every country is just based on the population. As someone who is a British Jewish student, I have. I am represented in the voting process both by the British Union, which has votes, and the European Union, which has votes, right? Twice. 
you most likely um as a british student coming to which congress you most likely will be voting on behalf of the ugs of uk the uk union unless ugs wants to point you out as the delegate of the european union of jewish students usually they're not doing it they have their board members um who are voting board members office members uh, but if you are a British student who is in the board of the European Union of Jewish Students, you can vote on behalf of EUJS. But it's up to EUJS to decide who their delegates are. Mm -hmm. And the same goes to the UK Union. They decide who their delegates are. But one person cannot be the delegate for both. You cannot vote, vote mm -hmm. for both. It's not possible. I'm sure that in the future I will... Um, just like I went into it very deeply on on the podcast describing the delegate system for EUJS, uh, people interested in that, I uh, I point to episode thirteen a few few weeks ago. Um, I'm sure that in the future it would definitely be worthwhile looking at uh, Woodjust as well, just to you know basically have a, a greater exploration, understanding what are the advantages and disadvantages of all of these. Uh, uh, systems. Yana, it's been a real pleasure being able to speak to you. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to cover, we've covered a lot of different areas. We haven't covered necessarily all of them in any sort of great, great detail, but I think in terms of both um, in terms of the both mountain Jewish identity, Jewish communities in Russia, that's also a very, very interesting subject that would be great to uh, uh, to go more in detail, as well as Wujus. Uh, it's been really, really interesting. So if you'd like to say any final um uh, have any final comments uh, as regarding the interview? Anything that you think uh, we we should we haven't said yet that that should be heard by our listeners, um, or any shout outs in particular? This is your space that you can that you can use. Um, I just want to say thank you guys for having me and uh, thank you for doing this job. Uh, I think we need to have more Jewish content um, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts everywhere. Uh, so really, thank you very much. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure to have you on. And honestly, we really agree. It's the reason we started this is because we really think there needs to be more Jewish media that really actually talks to people on the ground and not just these like people that are communal leaders in the high high society in a sense. We really are really grateful to have you. And of course, you are kind of in high society in the sense that you're the president <laughs> of Ujis. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's a grassroots organization. It's more grounded in... Uh, actual communal life and it's really wonderful to hear your perspective and to learn from you and we hope we can uh stay in touch and learn from you more it's really been a pleasure whenever you need something from me as a mountain jew as a russian jew as the president of wujas as an israeli i'm here for you guys thank you very much thank you so much
have taken